Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. The whole idea of this business is to prevent an incident of, of violence, either against an individual student or um, a mass violence event. And so being very um, aware of um, the students, whether they be in the classroom or in a hybrid situation or online is, is critically important. You ask about manufacturing distribution as, as pain points. A lot of times, retailers focus on their brick and mortar locations, and albeit maybe they're susceptible to, to theft, which they are, but they forget that the distribution center is a high risk area. And if they're not analyzing their losses occurring from that point, then they're missing a, a huge element in their in their pain points as far as what's creating more loss throughout their supply chain. Intelligence is probably your, your biggest friend. If you know how to use it, you know how to get it, you know how to analyze it, and it's timely and actionable. Uh, and so I, I would, I would put all of that uh, in my discussions with different clients on the table to help them sort through what is going to be their focus going into 2021. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Frank Straub is the director of the Center for Mass Violence Response Studies at the Police Foundation. Frank formerly served as the Chief of Police for Spokane, Washington, the Director of Public Safety for the City of Indianapolis, and the Public Safety Commissioner for the City of White Plains, New York. Frank, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me. Wow, we're going to have a really good discussion today. This is a whole new take on school violence. We need to look at new potential warning signs because we have people in virtual school situations. We have people not returning to school on time. I just had a, a story today that one school district won't be back until summer of 2021. And so it's really important for us to look at these new warning signs for school violence. Now, before we start that, tell us about the National Police Foundation Center and the studies and uh, where where this passion comes from to solve this problem. Because this is really, I think, one of our greatest crises right now. Well, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> so the National Police Foundation was founded 50 years ago, actually, this year. Um, and the purpose was to study policing and try to improve the quality of policing in the United States and internationally in the aftermath of the, the tumultuous times of the 1960s and, and early 1970s. So we're a nonprofit uh, non-member, non-partisan organization that is devoted to studying policing and advancing policing through uh, science, innovation, and, and empirical research. The, Nas the National Police Foundation um, in 2016, uh, right when I joined, became very involved in studying mass violence events, um, sadly. We started with the San Bernardino terrorist attack. We looked at the Pulse nightclub attack, the attack on Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, a mass shooting in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and most recently, a shooting on the campus of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Additionally, and I think this is the subject of today's conversation, uh, with Department of Justice, Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services uh, funding, we established the Averted School Violence Database. 
We also do work in the counter-extremism, counter-terrorism space. And so all of that work came together and we created the Center for Mass Violence Response Study, of which I'm the director. The idea being to um, study the phenomena of mass violence and its impact on law enforcement, private businesses, uh, public organizations, public spaces, and uh, schools. And so uh, it's with that that since 2017, we've been uh, tracking both averted and completed acts of school violence. The thought was is that there are many more averted attacks. And if we follow the paradigm that's been set in the aviation industry and in the medical profession, um, we have much to learn by attacks that didn't happen. Um, how were they stopped? Was it security? Was it school resource officers? Was it a school counselor? Um, what form of intervention stop the attack from taking place. So right now we have about 230 incidents in uh, the database, 170 are averted cases, and about 60 are completed uh, attacks. And so um, we would certainly encourage any of your listeners um, to report uh, incidents that they may be aware of, of either averted or completed access school violence. And that can be done um, by going to avertedschoolviolence.org. And there's an incident report form there that uh, folks can fill out anonymously and uh, help us track this very important and critical information. Frank, this really happens everywhere across all socio economical groups against all schools, public and private, doesn't it? It's really not unique to any one particular type of school. It really isn't. I, I mean, the, the vast majority of incidents we see do occur in uh, public schools, uh, typically in suburban public schools. Um, most of them focused on um, high school level uh, age groups, um, but we do see uh, you know, attacks in, in private schools as well as obviously um, in faith-based and charter schools, but public schools followed by private schools um, is typically where we see these attacks occurring. So back in the old days, we might have a school resource officer, might be a concerned parent. In my case, my son came home and said, hey, uh, Billy Bob said uh, he's going to shoot a bunch of my friends and he showed me a list. And then the parent reports it. And here's some intervention places that were kind of common. Now we have kids in virtual school. Now we have kids not coming back to school where the teacher can't see them for six months or a year. Talk to us about some of the new warning signs we may need to look for or adapt to to keep this success rate going. Because as you said, many more things are stopped than do occur, and that's where we want to be. Yeah, I think the first piece of this um, is not to let our guard down. Um, I, I don't. We have to be concerned and focused on trying to identify students at any grade level who really are, are, are kind of leave a, a, an emptiness in our stomach, a pit in our stomach. Um, they seem more withdrawn. They seem more isolated, um, maybe preoccupied with um, extremist or hate um, sites 
um, talking about or studying violence. Um, those are the, the people that we want to be um, sensitive to. The whole idea of this business is to prevent an incident of, of violence, either against an individual student by themselves or um, a mass violence event. And so being very um, aware of um, the students, whether they be in the classroom or in a hybrid situation or online is, is critically important. I, I would argue that certainly keeping track of children online is much more difficult than when we can see them sitting in front of us. But, you know, we, we have the ability um, to interact with our students online. We have the ability to, to some degree, see the dynamic um, that's going on around them if they're completely online. And we want to be, you know, very astute to um, indicators of maybe abuse or neglect or some type of violence. Um, we have across the country seen an uptick in domestic violence um, cases as, as people are losing their jobs and having difficulty meeting their bills and, and just the frustration of being locked in their homes with COVID. And so we want to be really, I think, hypersensitive um, to our students and, and to concerns that they may or may not be voicing, um, but there may be signs that there there is something challenging going on. So we're we're really in the new stage of this. I think there's an opportunity here to use technology to enhance our ability to see. And let me let me tell you what I'm thinking about. If we're sitting in a classroom watching a bunch of kids and there's that kid in the middle of the class that's got kind of a blank stare, the thousand yard stare, he's not emotionally engaged, he's been withdrawing from the social circle for a while. That's one way to look at it. But now maybe we have 10 kids online and 10 videos. And maybe that one kid in that one video just looks flat. Maybe they're not participating. Maybe we can see those physical manifestations of potential violence, right? Better? Is anybody thinking about that? Because the technology may give us an opportunity to see things more quickly. I don't, you know, yes, I think you're 100% right that the technology um, has the capacity to allow us to see things more quickly. And certainly um, there's an opportunity for artificial intelligence um, programming and other types of, of programming um, to be introduced to this uh, virtual world. I'm not sure that it's really happening. I think that... Um, we look at school violence as something that only happens in schools, in physical locations. Um, I look at it from the individual student out, and really what we're looking for is indications of harm, indications of violence. And as I mentioned before, that could be directed at themselves, or it could be um, directed at fellow students or uh, or others. So <clears throat> I think it's it, it's an interesting concept. I think much work is being done, as you probably know, in terms of monitoring social media content. Um, and, and that's been invaluable and has solved uh, and prevented suicides. It's broken up human trafficking rings. It's broken up um, online sexual exploitation 
Um, it's identified potential uh, plots to, to do violence in school. So there has been a lot of work in the social media space. Um, but in terms of using technology now to identify uh, children that may be um, experiencing significant challenges, I'm not sure that that's going on. But I think it's something that uh, clearly should be should be explored. You think of uh, you know one of the subgroups, incels, for example, right? Where there's a lot of mm -hmm. online involvement, a lot of echo chambering there that bolster people to to do these sort of things. So I hear you. I, I think there's potential. Of course, there's also potential for for harm uh, in that right. you know Big Brother kind of stuff. I get that. Any any work being done on some good old fashioned uh, outreach programs? Sure, we're online, and we've heard that there's going to be extended school possibly for another year in some states online. What about, uh, you know, the teacher, I don't know, once a month, somebody knocks on the family door and says, hey, Billy, just checking in on you guys. How you doing? I don't know, something something where we maintain this physical contact because I, I, I firmly believe the key to preventing violence is empathy. Empathy, I think, can only really occur when we're in the presence of somebody because we need to be able to read that body language. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I know uh, I live in Michigan and one of the, private schools here um, actually has their teachers and, and other members of their staff uh, doing home visits and, and obviously following, you know, social distancing and wearing masks. But just for that personal touch, um, not even necessarily to be inquisitive around challenges, but just to, as you said, um, keep that personal connection there as much as as much as possible. So I think we need to be very creative and very thoughtful about how we maintain those human connections. Um, you know, and, and I think we have to recognize that virtual contact is just that. It is virtual contact. And, and I think with that, um, much is lost um, frequently in terms of, of the human interaction, the human connection. There's an old French saying that says, uh, I am their leader. Uh, I really should follow them. And school hierarchy is such that I'm the principal, I'm the teacher, I'm the counselor, I'm the PA, and the student's not at the bottom of that hierarchy, right? Are we looking at flipping that model? Should we be listening to students' input now? Because really, they're the ones that are in this brave new world of virtual learning, and they really are in the best position to give feedback on this. It's 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 a flip side of the model, but maybe we're going to get better data from them if we if we listen. I think that's really important, right? I, I mean, I think it's important whether it's virtual school or it's in in school contacts. I think we really want to endeavor to give our students a voice. Um, we want to hear what they have to say about school climate. Right. There, there's been conversation for years and there's been significant efforts to really introduce positive school climates, uh, supportive school climates. And as part of those programs, typically there's a student survey. And I don't think we should we should lose that. Um, I, I think it's very important that we remain in contact with our students and, and hear their voices and give them voices in terms of. How does this feel for you? Um, do you? Do you want to talk to uh, a counselor virtually? Do you want a referral to a mental health professional? 
Um, does your family need a referral um, to somebody? Um, what could we do to make this more of a personal human experience for you than you sign on, you listen to the teacher, you do your assignments and you send it in virtually and that's the extent of, of contact. One thing that I've um, recommended and, and, and I would recommend nationally is that periodically um, school counselors sit in on virtual classes, um, school resource officers where they're still employed um, and I think they, they have invaluable contributions to make um, should be on um, virtual classes from time to time um, so that they stay connected with their students. The students continue to know that they're available to them, that they're a resource to them, and also to bring another set of eyes to the classroom um, to, to see what the, the dynamic amongst the students really looks like. Well, to your point, uh, changing school climate is accomplished in one way through social media nowadays. When you and I were kids, that wasn't how it was changed. Unfortunately, it's kind of shifted towards maybe a little bit center of uh, the violence side. We, we want less violence in schools. So I certainly think we can use the, the social media platforms to help change culture back the other way, right, to a positive school climate. I think we have the best opportunity in history to do that. It just may be a little bit of a challenge, but I think we can get there. Mr. Frank Straub, he's the director of the National Police Foundation Center for Mass Violence and Response Studies. Mr. Frank, thanks so much for coming on the show. Very interesting topic, very new emerging topic. So check in with us later to see how this uh, this is going. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Craig Matsumoto is vice president of Allied Universal Risk Advisory and Consulting Services. Prior to joining Allied Universal, Craig was vice president of risk loss prevention at Custom Risk Solutions, a division of SOS Security. Joshua School is the Senior Vice President of Allied Universal Risk Advisory and Consulting Services. Prior to joining Allied Universal, Joshua served 22 years with the FBI, ending his career as an Executive Assistant Director. Craig and Josh, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friends. Thank you, Chuck. Good to, good to be here again. Thanks, Chuck, and good to be here on the uh, call with you. Today, we're going to talk about protecting shops from looting, retail security trends, and how civil unrests and protests have affected retailer security. It's it's a whole new model, isn't it? I think the I'll, I'll go first, Chuck, and then uh, I, I don't know if I would call it a whole new model. I mean, I think what we've seen across the U.S., uh, you know, this last several months with the pandemic, uh, societal unrest, and then of course, leading into the elections. Has been a shifting stance for the security industry for sure. Uh, you know, we have a robust amount of resources uh, working in unison from the man guarding to technology to risk advisory and consulting, executive protection, intelligence, off duty police officers. So we have a lot of resources at our disposal um, to help a client navigate uh, the current threat environment. So, you know, Craig, I was looking at some statistics, and interestingly, uh, during this new period of uh, you know, civil unrest and COVID and everything, uh, the top five most used loss prevention systems are up considerably. Uh, uh, surveillance being number one, cameras being number one. And that had actually started trending in 2019, and it's it's only gone up from there. What what are your clients asking for? What, you know, what is their, 
their biggest concern right now. And, and when they draw on the vast resources you guys have, they come to Craig and say, I need this. Yeah, so so as Josh mentioned earlier, all of the issues, civil unrest, pandemic, all have created this um, issue for retailers that uh, increasing the amount of retail theft, specifically in the organized retail crime area. And that's these groups that are specifically targeting retailers as a business, going in, stealing volumes of product and converting it to cash as their business. So what clients are doing is they're coming to us because there's a couple of things that have happened. First of all, like uh, a lot of businesses, they've had to scale back on their internal resources. So they don't have as many people to support their loss prevention efforts. And yet the crime rates are still on the increase. So they're coming to us saying, help us supplement staff, help us address the organized retail crime issues that we're faced with that we can't do alone. And so we're actually supporting clients by providing additional resources to affect investigations and arrests for them. Now, Josh, when, when you say organized crime, we, we know that's always existed. Is organized crime now involved in the, let's just call it brute force theft, where stores are overwhelmed? Or does this go back to something different logistically? So I would say that you would have organized criminal activity that would do smash and grabs. But that's and, and we certainly have the resources to be the deterrent for a client on that. What, what uh, Craig and I are really focused on is the much more sophisticated groups that are um, causing retailers to lose tens of millions of dollars uh, in their supply chain from their warehouses. Uh, and how do we combat that at a much greater scale? They're smart, they're sophisticated, and they're organized. And so that's, you, you really have to have a concerted effort with a game plan that involves not just investigative resources, but the, the, the intelligence uh, to support those investigative resources, and then the reach to engage law enforcement where and when applicable. Uh, the little I know about the supply chain uh, from people I've spoken to, they've told me that uh, this is a growing concern. And if you disrupt one or two phases of a supply chain, it trickles down and affects others. So, Craig, what are, the, what are the biggest disruptions in the supply chain affecting the retail industry? Is it the manufacturing side of it? Or is it just that, you know, everybody's so busy and we're not able to pay as close attention to the supply chain? A lot of it is the amount of information and intelligence, uh, as Josh mentioned, that the retailers are able to uh, review and pinpoint where their losses are occurring. So you ask about manufacturing distribution as, as pain points. A lot of times... Retailers focus on their brick and mortar locations, and albeit maybe they're susceptible to, to theft, which they are, but they forget that the distribution center is a high risk area. And if they're not analyzing their losses occurring from that point, then they're missing a, a huge element in their, in their pain points as far as what's creating more loss throughout their supply chain. So that's what we really focus on with, with retailers is helping them identify truly where their losses are occurring within their supply chain. Is it manufacturing? Is it distribution? Is it en route to the brick and mortar stores? Is it at the stores? Reason that's important is in these days, it helps them 
deploy resources and funding in a very intelligent way. And that's important for retailers because business is off right now. So, Josh, you're looking at this at 30,000 feet, which is excellent way to do it. And, and I know Allied Universal has a lot of technology they can deploy on these sort of things. Let's talk about prosecution. A supply chain can cover multiple areas of jurisdictions, making it often difficult to report where the theft happened and therefore engage the right police department or law enforcement agency. How do we get clients to focus on this and understand the significance of accurate data analysis? So it absolutely is. It goes to the investigation. Where is where is this uh, scene of the crime? How do you engage? So what you're talking about is is state or or local law enforcement, which of course would be a huge um, has a capability to do that, but also effectively engaging federal uh, law enforcement when and where appropriate, right? And understanding what their uh, threshold crimes are, usually involving what type of organized criminal activity is it a named group or a group of people that are organized. And then having the discussion with them as to the necessary needs um, to bring forth a prosecution. Generally speaking, some of the clients that uh, our investigative team and Craig are working with, their losses are tremendous. So it's going to meet that threshold so long as you can prove it. And then then working through the investigation and out where the product has been um, uh, removed from the supply chain would give you that jurisdiction. Not to mention on the federal side, if you're having interstate transportation across state lines, uh, you're having uh, potential advertising, using social media to advertise, um, you know, stolen, you could potentially also involve wire, uh, wire fraud charges uh, in, engaged in that as well. And that's a, a point I'll, I'll carry on a little bit um, because I think it's really important. Uh, retailers today, for the most part, they have good relationships with their local law enforcement agencies. Where they get obstacles is when they need to take the cases to the federal level. They don't always have that resource. And in these situations, in order to really curb the activity, you're not going to eliminate it, but you can slow it down. You generally have to get to the federal level to affect good arrests that take the organizations out of commission for a period of time. Well, that's an excellent, excellent point. I had not thought about it that way. So we're looking at this at 30,000 feet. Let's come down to the street level and talk to me about the old-fashioned model of, uh, hi, we have a loss prevention guard in the lobby, and he says hello to everybody. We're doing some some observations of people coming and going, and this helps contribute to a, a feeling that the the customers feel somebody's paying attention. When we have civil unrest, how effective can we be in this area to bring people back into the store where at any moment, you know, everything can go uh, to heck in a handbasket? Sure. And uh, it absolutely can do that. I mean, you're talking about uh, really kind of a wide tree, right? There is the aspect of making sure you have the right security resources to provide that security for customers and our clients, right? So their customers, our clients, and they feel safe in those stores. We have done that for a host of big box retailers, high-end retailers, uh, in order to make sure that they had the right resources applied to that. And then you have what Craig has already touched on, the supply chain, organized criminal activity. So during the during social unrest, you work with your clients to understand the risk that their stores may be facing. What have they faced historically? What is their current intelligence uh, telling us? And then help uh, you know, provide 
decision-making matrix on what aspects of they should employ to make them a, a less of a target. I, just to carry a little bit more on what Josh was talking about too, some of the, you know, you mentioned civil unrest and, and how to get the customers back into the uh, locations and how that affects um, the, the organized groups. They actually take advantage of the civil unrest. I mean, chaos for them is, is, is a true opportunity. Um, you know, you can go from the looting and all of that, but on a day-to-day -day, uh, business, the, the retailers that are trying to get back to work among all the civil unrest are trying to put in place some measures. They're teaching their employees on different de-escalation techniques, the types of things that they might be able to do to deter and buy time when they're being attacked by an organized group um, and, and they can call law enforcement. So they're trying to come at it from a whole bunch of different avenues using technology, using um, integrated camera systems, using the security forces at the doors, and using their employees and training them on what they can do. Have you guys uh, had any accounts switch their mentality from, I'm waiting for police to get here, to, you know what, Allied Universal is now my first responder. Because traditional first responders, frankly, aren't available in some areas. We do have a host of clients that we proactively plan for or during societal unrest uh, work to surge resources to their to their locations. Uh, but if they're if they're in the midst of a of a crisis moment, you know, nine one one is going to be their best best friend. On your question, though, where law enforcement is really resource challenged, this has been a host of conversations we've had both on the Duty police officers, uh, man guarding, as well as investigative resources. How do we help, uh, you know, a client mitigate what are they can, what are their biggest concerns? I think as you go into planning for 2021, uh, you really have to take a look at those critical uh, business needs, security needs, uh, how you're resourced and protecting against them, uh, making sure you have an objective viewpoint going forward, uh, and effectively the intelligence to help you ensure that you're as agile as you need to be in an environment that's very fluid. That's a lot to swallow, but I like to use the, the, the back planning of understanding all of that and then work uh, and then arraying your resources against those most, most critical vulnerabilities. And so, and then figuring out how and where you need additional resources to shore up those, those gaps. Uh, intelligence is probably your your biggest friend. If you know how to use it, you know how to get it, you know how to analyze it, and it's timely and actionable. Uh, and so I I would I would put all of that uh, in my discussions with different clients on the table to help them sort through what is going to be their focus going into 2021. I think that right now the loss prevention and asset protection professionals are really looking at things going into 2021 from a strategic standpoint. Um, Josh mentioned, you know, getting the intelligence, understanding and trying to anticipate what's going to continue and where best to ask the company to allocate funding is the, their challenges right now. Obviously, I think we are probably going to have uh, a continuation, uh, as Josh mentioned, into the first three months at least, but for, 
for the rest of the practitioners that are looking for the balance of the year. How do I best put our budget to get the biggest bang for the buck? And I know in every environment, that's what they're looking at, analyzing and trying to determine best they can. Craig Matsumoto, Josh School, Allied Universal Risk Advisory Consulting Services. The guys walk the walk and talk the talk. Thanks so much for coming on Screen Mansion Highlights, my friends, and good luck to you in the coming year. Thanks for having us, Chuck. Really enjoyed being here. Thank you, Chuck. Had a great time. <laughs>